Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Comic Book Nation, the only show that does it all for geek culture. And if you're joining me today, host Kofi Outlaw, we are doing this special bonus round episode talking about the one, the only, Oppie, a.k.a. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And today for this discussion, I've invited two of my comic book co-workers who also enjoy the fine art of cinema. And that would be my buddy, Mr. Connor Casey, who you guys know from the show. Boom. And Daily Distraction host, interviewer extraordinaire, comic book personality guy. And uh, I hear he also does some comedy on the side sometimes. Mr. Chris Killian is with us. Hey, yes, fellow cinephile. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, shout out to uh, Patrick Cavanaugh. He couldn't make it because we had to reschedule this, but uh, he did the last bonus rep, uh, bonus round episode about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and uh, he had thoughts on Oppenheimer. But you can read Patrick's review of Oppenheimer, the official comicbook.com review that is up now on comicbook.com movies. And also, we had our Barbie review because we got to get into the Barbieheimer of it all somewhere in this discussion. But uh, Barbie's also opening this weekend, and we have our official Barbie review up. So go to comicbook.com movies, and that is comic book, all one word. And be sure to check out both of those in addition to listening to this podcast about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. So let's get right on into it. No more preamble needed. We're going to be talking about Oppenheimer and we're going to do this in two stages for people who may want to download our podcast. I know a lot of you are now subscribing to comic book nation on your podcast platforms and on YouTube, but you might be getting this content before you get to see the movie. So we're going to do this in two steps. First, we're going to go around and do our instant reactions to Oppenheimer. We all saw this at the same screening last night here in Nashville, Tennessee, on, on the glorious IMAX, so we got the full presentation. So we're going to go around and give some spoiler-free reactions to the film. Then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back, and we will get into our full kind of spoiler-filled discussion of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. So you're safe to listen no matter whether you've seen the movie or not. All right, so I'll just kind of take it off at the bat, get my whole blurb out of the way so you guys can do the much more entertaining job of talking through this and... As I put out on Twitter, I think that Oppenheimer is definitely a three-hour talkie of a film. I use that term with movies that are just mostly kind of dialogue-driven and scenes of people having conversation. This movie is almost entirely that for three hours. And on paper, to a lot of modern moviegoers, that might sound like, oh, no, a red flag or something, but it really isn't. I found this movie strangely compelling and kind of gripping, I think I said half jokingly, but not really. It was hard to kind of spot a bathroom break for me. And like when, at which part I could actually get up and feel like, oh, I can just, there's not going to be much to this scene. I can just leave. It was really hard to do. And even when I did it, I was like, yeah, I definitely missed something, you know, compelling. Because I think in many ways this is, and I said this also, I think this is Nolan's best edited film in terms of taking we know this director loves to play in different time periods or places at once and kind of cut them together in this non-linear kind of, but still fashion that still reveals a story and a theme and character arcs um, from his very first broke breakout with Memento through films like Dunkirk to what we're getting now in Oppenheimer. So this story is also that Nolan non-linear where we're seeing uh, Jay Oppenheimer as a young scientist and then as the guy is the head of the Manhattan Project and then in the years after World War II going into the Korean War the 1950s McCarthyism and all of that and even sometime kind of through that period into leading to the 60s so this covers a lot of time 
and this man's life. And this is one of the more interesting portraits of him. But as we'll get into when I get to get to my tinfoil hat time, um, I enjoyed the movie very much as a portrait of Jay Oppenheimer and what he represents to modern history as the father, the quote unquote father of the atomic bomb. And uh, yeah, it's just really kind of compelling stuff with a big cast of actors. I was sitting next to Connor Casey and I remember every time somebody would pop on the screen, he'd point like almost like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme. He was just like, oh, it's, you know, so-and-so. But a lot of faces show up in even the bit performers in here. Um, whether, whether it was Benny Safety or, you know, just people who just show up. Like uh, Josh Peck, I think, shows up in it. Josh Hartnett has this kind of recurring role in the film. Um, our boy uh, Alden Einrich is kind of this person who helps frame the story and push it along in the telling. They're, even those castings are so kind of vital and good and add something. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. gives one hell of a performance. And I know why people are talking about him and awards and things like that. But he proves to be this very compelling, I don't want to say too much, but character in the movie. And uh, if you don't know your history, I mean, this is all Googleable about history, but, you know, still people will be like, it's a spoiler. I should have didn't learn it in school. But, you know, the character he plays in that in that transition was all very good. So, yeah, I mean, it's weird. I, I guess I'm not trained to be this enjoyed by adult drama, cinema, old school Citizen Kane style movie making anymore. But uh, this was definitely on that level and in that vein. And there's a lot more I want to talk about in my tinfoil spoilers section. So we'll wait for that. But uh, Connor and but at the same time, I think uh, just let me say this. At the same time, I think it's a movie that'll be hard for me to re-access. I don't know. Me and my little brother were joking about this this morning. It's like, oh, look what's on HBO, like playing on TV. It's Oppenheimer. Let me kill a few three hours, like, you know, re-watching this. I don't know how re-accessible this movie will be for me personally. And that's kind of the interesting thing about it and what I want to get into with you guys is how did you enjoy it and how many times would you enjoy this movie again? I I love the movie, but I, I I agree with you. Like I sort of would classify this as like almost like a Schindler's List or a Passion of the Christ, where it's like a very it's a good movie. It's like like just a it, it's a fantastic movie. But man, it, if I wish we had a palate cleanser last night, like Barbie, to watch immediately afterwards, because since we didn't watch Barbie afterwards, I went home and just googled gas masks and how much those cost, because uh, this is like a downer. It's it's a it's a it's a downer of a film for sure. So I, I agree with you that I definitely don't see myself re. I might rewatch it more like what one more time. I'd like to go to IMAX one more time and watch it just because of the spectacle that Nolan puts on. But it's 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 not a feel good movie for sure. Yeah, Chris, I'm with you there. Where I think it it's such an investment both in terms of time and in terms of you have to stay focused and listen in on all of these conversations for three straight hours and there's very little break in between these 20 minute sections of just rapid fire dialogue between multiple characters sometimes all in one room sometimes spanning three different time periods you know overall i think this is this is one of no one's best i absolutely love this film i think that i i, I love no one and if you ask me to list my 10 favorite films, two of them would be his. But I'm also in this weird spot where the film bro conversations surrounding him for the past decade or so has been exhausting. All the while, I would put everything post-Inception as it's good, but it's each film is flawed in some way. Dark Knight Rises is a bit of a mess. Interstellar is his attempt at emotion, and it kind well, of hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's not let's not talk about Interstellar let, like let, that. Let me monologue here for a second. Here, he's <laughs> Interstellar. It's his attempt at emotion, and it doesn't always land. Uh, Dunkirk is great, but I've always argued that I don't know if that film loses anything if it had been told sequentially as opposed to the time frame it wanted to be in. I don't think he acquitted himself very well with how he handled Tenet and the movie itself is great when it's a B-style spy film, but 
It's also saying, hey, don't think too hard about this movie while we give you some really complex ideas to play with and a sound mixing where you can't understand what anybody is saying without subtitles. I have none of those qualms with this movie. And I think what stuck out the most to me was it, there is such a massive cast that when you start reading the list on Wikipedia, you literally have to start scrolling because there are so many name actors in this movie playing real historical characters. And the trick he plays with it is that sometimes Gary Oldman's probably my favorite of the, hey, you're on for a scene or two and you're going to steal that one scene you're in. Or it's these it's actors where you're doing the DiCaprio. Hey, I recognize who that person is. And they'll hang out in the background for a bit. And you'll be like, oh, are they are they just are they just kind of playing a bit part in this? Emily Blunt's, you know, she's in the background of a few shots before the camera actually focuses on her. You go, hey, wait a minute, that's Emily Blunt. And she's she's not really doing much in this movie. She's just kind of being angry and riding horses and being pregnant. And she doesn't get to do a lot. And then at one point you go, oh, that's why you cast her. Because now this is her time to shine. And the, the best example of that is Robert Downey Jr., where for, I'd say, two-thirds of this film, he's he's really kind of underplaying the role he's got to where you're like, where's the where's the guy who had the charisma that helped Marvel take over the entertainment industry? And then in the last 30 minutes or so, you go, oh, there it freaking is. And you go, okay, this is, this is that. I, he's got three or four, like, Oscar-worthy speeches where you go, this is the clip they're going to show whenever that awards show comes around and yeah, it's, it's, I, I linking it to Kofi. You'll get a kick out of this. I thought this was Nolan's version of a Wu-Tang song where it's like, Hey, here's Ghostface, RZA, Method Man. Everybody in the lineup gets a turn with the mic. And when they do get their turn, they all kill it. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the best way to describe it's not it. bad. I mean, this is kind of a Wu-Tang concert of acting. Like, it is pretty true. Um, and everybody brings, like, their own crazy flavor to it, like I said. And there are some people who, for, you know, there are people we expect to, like, just come in and just be able to kill a scene. Like Matt Damon. Like, Matt Damon, even. Matt Damon. Just, it, it's just I, so every good. Every time he showed up, and I had to do general, the yeah. America World Police thing. I was oh, yeah. Like, Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, you, you're talking about like people who are Oscar worthy people like Florence Pugh just showing up for like this bit storyline in this, right? With all these, Jack, but like Jack all these Quaid, crazy one scenes. of the Jack, one Quaid. of the Safety brothers, Josh Peck. Yeah. Um, yep. And Ram, Rami, Rami Malek does Rami nothing. Malek, and like, then at the yeah. end, he does the biggest thing and you just fist yeah, bump exactly. and you start speeching. Like holy crap! But it's just yeah, it's just crazy how many people, like you said, Olivia Thurlby is even in this as like something with like a little kind of vignette arc about the female being a female person on the Manhattan Project. There's so many stories that you feel like you could do, and even just people showing up that we've just met, like my uh, my Mayfish uh, Schweighofer from um, Army of the Dead and Army of Thieves. Like yeah, it's, it's nice. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. as Heisenberg. So yeah, it, it's crazy how stacked this is. And like you said, you're like at some point in it defies the movie star thing because, like you said, the first act of the film is Emily Bullant in this main kind of interview room scene where she's sitting behind, you know, Killian Murphy, who I mean, fantastic like I mean, this guy's been killing it for so long, it's hard to praise him if you've ever watched Peaky Blinders or any of the stuff he's like really i mean from 28 days later on like but this is i mean his also his big film that i'm sure people will be pointing to and nominating him for and giving him kinds of you know the definitive thing of his career because there is so much he does subtly with and by the end of the film and i think that was really a good kind of what they brought out is just who jay oppenheimer was and what was going on in his mind at all times throughout all this which we'll get into in spoilers, but like, yeah, it is crazy how many people show up and cook in this movie, right? Like it's, it is pretty nuts. And Nolan's known for getting, you know, big cast, but this is by far the biggest. And like you said, everybody has something to add and something to do and just some great performances. I was trying to think of, 
Oh, David Crumholtz, who's also really great in this, you know. I thought I also thought Matt Damon was incredible. I mean, yeah, I, we, I said that a couple of comments back. Him and Jason Clark. I mean, it just goes on. Like once yeah, we start, yeah. Every, yeah. everybody's fantastic. I mean, it's it's definitely I feel like awards bait for sure. I mean, there's so many good uh, just moments in the whole movie. And I yeah, just kept so. thinking about how in lesser hands, this could have been such a a weaker film it could have just focused around los alamos where from start to end we see the bomb get built and that be it but nolan wanted to focus so much on the entirety of oppenheimer's life to where there's even there the structure that he chooses with he's he's doing the nonlinear storytelling thing again but unlike dunkirk the reveal as to why he did it towards the end hits you like a ton of bricks. And I just think so many directors wouldn't have even attempted something like that. They would have just said, hey, it's a bunch of dudes. They're building a bomb. The bomb went off. Yay, America. That would have been it. But no, he he strove for more. Now, this is yeah. the spoiler-free version of the show, right? This is yeah, this part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what did you guys think of the uh, the black and white mix? You know, Because there was definitely a part of me that thought like that might borderline on pretentious but i really actually like seeing the way that he split the two timelines up uh i, I really personally enjoyed it i thought that it was a, a much clearer way to sort of signal which story we're getting you know compared to other uh nolan movies for example well that was the memento he went back to the mm. memento trick right like that was yeah. the trick in memento was keeping track of like what was happening in the black and white stories and what was happening in the color stories and our perceptions of like what's happening in these stories and like where these kind of twists in perception come from. So I, I really did enjoy that in, in kind of enjoy what it did. I haven't even thought about it too much. There's so much to like break down about this. film. <laughs> My brain hurts like already. It took me just sleeping to get this far, but yeah, I mean, I think it really did do a good job, especially in the first act or two of, like you said, keeping it clear because there and we're going to take a break and then get into spoilers about this, but like, it's hard to talk about, but like, yeah, the way this tells the story, the way it just tells this narrative of a biopic is fascinating just in and of itself and groundbreaking for most other filmmakers. As Connor said, like in lesser hands, this would have been either so bland and boring or a mess of an ambitious attempt, but Nolan nails it. So I think without further ado, let's just take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about Oppenheimer in full spoilers. And that's going to be that because I have a lot to say when we can get into some details. So stay tuned. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Comic Book Nation's Bonus round episode where we are talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. First half was our spoiler-free reactions. Now, let's get into the meat and potatoes. Our full spoilery discussion of this film. So, as I said before the break, yeah, the narrative. So, this movie kind of does the Nolan thing of memento. It's a very, there's a lot of all, 
this movie is kind of a masterpiece for Nolan in the sense that I feel like a lot of the tricks he learned over the course of all of his films are kind of things that we get brought out in here. Um, there is, I think he learned from some of the emotional stuff. He didn't do so well in Interstellar. That is a little bit more emotional in this one. There's a non-linear things he started to do in like Memento that really play well. Even elements of like characters who see constant vision that we saw in Insomnia. Um, obvious things from the blockbuster lessons he learned from Batman and kind of playing with things like Inception. And so it's a hodgepodge of a lot of these things, but um, what it does like Memento that I thought was so fascinating was start kind of at the end of this person's life when they're old, start back at when they're young, keep moving both sides until it all hinges around this middle section, right? With this conversation between Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein. Um, and the whole quote unquote, because there has, it's Nolan films, there has to be a mystery and a twist, right? So I like that this wasn't too like, crazy Shyamalan heavy in the mystery and twist, but that it did have this hook that kept us fascinated, which was what did these two say to each other through at this pivotal conversation they had after Oppenheimer took over at this Institute following world war two. Right. Um, and it's about in, in the end, it kind of does reveal, as we said, and as I was kind of trying to say, Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer, there's a lot of these kind of resettings of perceptions about what Oppenheimer was trying to do once he had kind of invented this bomb and what Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who I want to start using these names because they're actual historical figures, Louis Strauss was doing with, you know, his attempt to discredit Oppenheimer through these kind of shady ways. And basically that this character was like very tormented in his knowledge of this theory that he was envisioning and what it could do and, and how much harm it could cause and how much that did torment and weigh on him throughout. And I, it's so hard to describe now, like just talking it back, but I feel like there, this movie is broken up into good thematic chapters and each and how it works is why you can't get up is each chapter is its own little part of this kind of story with its own little arc and kind of thematic resolution that moves us to this other part. But even though we're getting different points of this man's life, they're just sequences in here that are just so well done in their pointedness. Like I remember one as Connor was saying, like the rapid fire sequence where it cuts back forth through these different hearings and trials, but where they're really just kind of hammering home on, you know, Oppenheimer's morality and his ethical choices. And what does that all mean? And it's pretty heavy handed stuff. I mean, it's like the film, you like literally yelling a philosophy debate at us, but the way it's spliced together and how hard hitting the dialogue is and how it makes you feel this pressure, like almost like it's the particles and the building and this motif we see before you have this big explosion. And it, yeah, it's pretty nuts, man. Like, that kind of thing was pretty wild in this movie. And I just remember looking around the IMAX theater in key points like that and just seeing like everybody, you like you guys, everybody else, just like on the edge of their seat, like, oh my God. And it's like literally just people talking, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you guys have to say? My brain hurts just trying to. Yeah, I think I, it's, it's just such a, it's such a very important film, right? But it, the doom and gloom of it all is definitely overwhelming. I mean, you, I don't want to get too much in, into the news about it all but when you hear about you know james cameron there's an article that came out today about him talking about ai and he's like i warned you guys back in 19 writing that on the next tab right here yeah it's right here on the next tab yeah, yeah. and then there's like the, the, you know there's the scientist that came out that was a proponent of climate change in the 80s that's like we're damn fools it's here it's too we're too late like that so it, it's 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 a really it's a really depressing movie in the sense of like where it ends and, and that whole chain reaction speech that he gives at the end where he's like, yeah, we thought we were going to light the atmosphere on fire, but there was a chain reaction and we're basically all screwed. So it, it's it, it's very despondent in that way. And um, which is a little depressing. Any here today, we're never going to be we're never going to be able to look at uh, rain puddles. Right. You know, right. Yeah, but but I, but I did think, but I think it's a it's an important movie, right? It's a very like the message that I think that Nolan is getting out, like thematically, the heart of it. I think is really how how dangerous, brilliant, or powerful men can be when their pride is damaged. Like that to me 
is what the movie was ultimately about when you see all the damage that you know Strauss has done because he thought uh, either Robert Downey Jr. or not Robert Downey Jr. Sorry, Killian Murphy as as Oppenheimer was talking crap about him, or because he embarrassed him in that hearing. Um, but then you also see it with Oppenheimer, right? Oppenheimer gets sort of embarrassed in class, and he's he's willing to like poison his professor. I mean, so it's like just the the amount of damage that that can be done when when these powerful men have their pride hurt. I think is sort of a, a theme that's really on display here that I think is an important lesson that I think a lot of, maybe not us common folk, but there's a lot of people that need to be aware of like what is happening and, and, and the, the result that can come from it. But that, that was my biggest takeaway from the film that I, that I really enjoyed as a message that I thought Nolan was trying to get out there. Yeah. Kof, you mentioned the, the tricks that Nolan picked up from his previous films that he used here. He used one from The Prestige. He tells you at the beginning of the movie that this film is about ripple effects when he shows you the raindrops hitting the water. And that goes all the way up until the final shots of the movie. I'm like, damn it, he did it again. He told us what this movie yeah. was about at the start. Yep, and for how first images. It's, it's ripple effects of how people interact, how pride can be hurt, how when you take out revenge, other people react to that. How when you create something, it can be put in the hands of other people and used in ways you didn't want to or you didn't quite understand what the ripple effect of your creation was going to lead to, to where Murphy's final shots are him gripping with the fact that he's changed human history now to where we have the capability of destroying all life on Earth. We've had the common sense not to so far but now that is on the table and that is a result of him and him in and killian murphy's eyes show the weight of that realization as he's staring into the water after talking with einstein and you just go how can anyone deal with that and then it's then you understand why the last 40 minutes of this film aren't more after effects of the bomb it's him trying to stop more bombs and bigger bombs from being created while and nobody's it, listening to him right exactly no one so, cares. like the harry truman scene is so important because you can almost see it in his oh, face yeah. where he's like we're screwed mm -hmm. he knows like seeing truman the way that truman's sort of gloating about the bomb and he's like nobody cares about who built the bomb they only care about who dropped the bomb and i dropped the bomb get this crybaby out of here mm -hmm. it's it's so it's so fascinating watching um, Killian Murphy's performance as a guy who realizes that he's developed this weapon that we cannot be trusted with. It is not, no matter what side you're on, whether it's the Nazis, whether it's America, it, like you, it, it's too powerful for men in general. Yeah. And getting yeah. back to the, the structure cove, when you're talking about the different timelines merging, no one benefits from that more than Robert Downey Jr. To where I didn't think this movie needed a villain. I, I thought uh, Clark was kind of that in the in the all the interviews where it's like, OK, this is clearly just, you know, Red Scare. We're doing the communism thing again, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nope, actually, it was Robert Downey Jr. Who's the biggest bastard in this whole thing. And he gets to have the big villain speech out of nowhere. And you're just you're just sitting back and you're like, where the hell was this the whole time? He was just playing an old man sitting at tables. Well, what I also think is brilliant, confirmation. Too, like he's, he's a villain, but like they're all sort of villains, right? Like they all play their hand in it. I mean, we're talking about these guys who know like there's a percentage of a chance that they're going to light the atmosphere on fire and they know that they, they do not know what's going to happen and they still forge ahead with it. Like, you know, there's there's so many opportunities throughout the movie for them to do the right thing and stop working on this or to try to come together and like we got to talk to germany or russia about this and like this cannot happen and they don't do it it's all it, it pride pushes them forward and it's it's you know pride and i would say fear in a lot of ways but it's 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 really incredible to watch and and you almost see history repeating itself currently like right with like the ai situation like it's almost like happening all over again and and how are we gonna like 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 get through this but uh i think yeah nolan has done a masterful job here um and it's uh it's scary it's so scary 
I want to touch on what Connor said because now it's time for my tinfoil hat because Connor, the, my thing that I took away from the film was, you know, not just the thing about prideful men and that whole thing, which is very scary can given world events, like as we're seeing older kind of men who have held power and what happens when they're kind of coming to the end of that or the possible end of that and how crazy people will act and what it pushes them to do. But I always think that, you know, Nolan is an artist and it, there's a lot about all of his films when you watch them for enough time, which I mean, like Inception, great movie. It's about, you know, dream heisting and stuff, but it's also about like, you know, the imagination and filmmaking itself and how we can or cannot kind of do that. And, you know, there's a lot that I think he puts in <laughs> of himself into his movies um and then this one is no different i think in some ways this one is the most as i was joking my little brother today like the most navel gazing in some ways because i think connor hit it on the head one big theme in this is the theme of what you create and then put out in the world and then what happens when you put it out in the world right and the unintended consequences there's a big part of this movie that is them struggling in the manhattan project dreaming this thing up then physically getting it i mean the manhattan project is physically like a film set almost like it's a little town they construct. It's this place where they're working. It takes all these different people and teams of people with the expertise to put this thing together. That's just like a movie. But when you put it out there and like when it's as soon as it's done, right? And as soon as you have it in the box, then the studio's like, all right, great, thanks. Like we're taking this and we're gonna decide how it gets used, how it gets distributed, like all this stuff. And then you get it out there in the world and people's reactions to it in. You know, there's this great scene as the night, you know, Oppenheimer has to give this speech when the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima and how he interprets what he sees in the crowd, right? There are all these different reactions he sees. Some people are madly cheering. Some people are, you know, sick with it. Some people are not even caring. They're screwing under the bleachers or drinking. And that, you know, that scene the, too, that, so, it's so brilliant because of the way that like the, the, everybody's applauding and he can't hear it. Like it's just yeah. like it, it's just it's just drowned out in silence and his own in, in inner turmoil. It's it's beautiful. I just wanted to add yeah. that part to it. No, no, you're right. I mean, that is the, that's how it's filmed. It's really intense scene. And there's a part of me that I can't ignore that. I feel like there's something about this that has to do with him and his own kind of rumination on filmmaking, um, because he's not just like this isn't just a filmmaker, right? Like this is Nolan. And there are some pretty pivotal things he did. Like, I think that there's a lot of this movie that he'll might deny to his dying day, but I think a lot of it has to do with making the dark Knight trilogy and starting from this place where he was this unlikely guy picked for the project. Right. Like nobody in the beginning thought like he'd be the guy to head and bring back Warner brothers, Batman franchise and do that. But he gets in because he has this vision of this nonlinear kind of crazy Batman story and right from the bat, then they start making changes to it and things. Then they come back to him and like, we need you to get this masterpiece up. And he gets this other masterpiece up. And then from there, then it's just like, okay, now let's run with it. Let's just make everything dark and gritty. Like, let's make superhero movies. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then I feel like he ends up in this place where you now have him being like one of the biggest voices for, yeah, let's stop doing superhero stuff and get back to cinema. Like, I don't know. And I feel like part of this movie is about that, like is about the regret of what you start when you put something out in the world and you don't intend. He's just like, oh, I just wanted to make like one, maybe two little movies and get out of this. Then I got caught in the studio system and then I had to do this. And then it spawned this whole thing that people are saying now is arguably killing cinema. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a part of that, this movie that's definitely about that now is that a it bit egotistical to co put up against the the atomic bomb possibly but i don't think it's something that can be entirely separated either as kind well, of message. and so, it can be more than one thing right like right. oh yeah yeah absolutely like yeah. yeah this is art of course it can be more than one thing and it's just like <laughs> and, and i think he would say well it's just about the nature of anything creative act right like mm -hmm. the entire nature of it, just whether it's a painting that becomes some cheap nft a movie you make that you know, Brian De Palma making Scarface and then everybody taking Scarface and being like, this is going to make me murder people and snort coke and be like, well, I don't think that what that movie was trying to tell you was the message of that movie. Right. I think right. they're trying to tell you that that kind of stuff is going to lead you to ruin and everything. But 
now it's the poster child for every wannabe thug in, in America and across the world. But, yeah. you know, I think so. I think there is kind of an important and struggling message in that, because I think one of the most haunting things for me in the film is the thing that actually Einstein tells Oppenheimer. Right. And you get in that final montage about, yeah, you're going to get the awards and they're going to say all these things to you. But it's really about like them and it has nothing to do with you you're just being kind of put out to pasture and they're going to take what you've done now and they're just gonna run with it without you and it's right. kind of yeah because that's kind of what happened to him right like that's what oppenheimer ironically well, kind of did to him yeah to oppenheimer um, right and cove when when you had the run sheet and you said oh it's time for the tinfoil hat theory it reminded me of when the first couple of trailers for this came out and people were starting to throw out the theories of did no one really make a movie about the nuclear bomb and try to make it about him making the dark night? And I went, God, I hope not. Cause if you thought the conversation surrounding no one was exhausting before get ready. Uh, I don't think I, I, I definitely see the parallels between creating something like this and seeing the ripple effects versus creating a film and seeing how it is absorbed by society and then what becomes of that it's not a perfect one-to-one of the dark knight trilogy because if it was then the next town over would have made the exact same bomb the time he made the dark knight and that bomb would have become the thing that dominates war and not well his i mean isn't that sort of what we were getting with the hydrogen bomb though well here's the thing is that, what we were, i feel like that was sort of what they were getting at a little bit kind of but like marvel is what really when people say, oh, there's too many superhero movies, they're talking about Marvel. They're not necessarily talking about Nolan because there's been a hell of a lot more Marvel content than there's been well, his stuff. I think this film really hit me because I was starting in, like, I started in this industry in the year that Iron Man and The Dark Knight came out. And what happened after that, yeah. What happened after that, it, it, and I remember this so vividly, was like, yeah, Marvel was still working on their phase one plans, but nobody really believed like they were doing something, but that was still far off. It was Nolan and the Dark Knight that made people say, oh, when it made a billion dollars, people were like, that changed everything. People were like, oh, superheroes are legit. They can make big money. They can be, remember, they can be cinema was that whole thing, just grounded and dark and gritty. And that was the key that made people really start running with this idea that these things could be the next big blockbuster ownership and entertainment and entertainment. And it was before Marvel got there. Marvel just came into the stretch through a very, very messy phase one mm -hmm. experience and then hit that stride with Avengers one in 2012 where, you know, a billion dollars now just became the standard. It wasn't and this became a franchise that could then sustain, keep repeating those things. It wasn't just one film. It was just now the formula. And mm -hmm. that's what Marvel got. But Marvel really got that run and that the belief system behind it from Nolan. Right. And they tried everything to get Nolan to keep building a bigger bomb. It, like the Nolan, like the original DCEU was supposed to be the Nolan, Nolan Snyder kind of mm -hmm. collective. The two of them, and it was a whole kind of Nolan's kind of non-linear, heady braining, Snyder's visuals and all of I mean, that stuff even, was going to be the he's ultimate even a combination. On steel, right? Yeah, right. And yeah. That was honestly, the, that was the temple there. They, they were almost going to do it together. And then Nolan was the one who said, you know what? Like, I'm out. Like, that, and that's I did the a thing trilogy is, and I'm out. If we're doing, if, if this is all one-to-one, -one, Safdie is Zack Snyder in the movie where he's making, he's like, hey, I want to make this other bomb. And no one's like, oh, I'm kind of involved in this, but then I'm not really. And it's yeah. like, actually, I want to get out of this. So that, Safdie's not really Marvel. Safdie's, you know, DC. No, I thought Marvel was just, not to, not to be a joke, but like Marvel was like the Nazis. It's the thing you they knew they were competing against. Because mm -hmm. at the time, that's that I think that was a lot of the thing about The Dark Knight Rises. No one was like, can I just yeah. tell this story and leave it like this? And he's dead, and can I get out? And they're like, no, we got to keep this franchise going. We're building this franchise over here. Look what they're doing over there. Like, we got to keep this thing going. And that's why they kind of pushed him into doing the third. And he was re very reluctant to do the third. 
if you remember that time period. I'm sorry, Chris, you were going to say something? Well, I no, I just feel like uh, maybe maybe it would be more akin to say that that Marvel's Russia. But I now that you've you've got this brilliant parallel, though, I do want to sit down and be like, OK, so if Nolan is Oppenheimer, like who are these other characters? Well, and, and oh, that, that's where the comparison starts falling apart, because like who the hell is Florence Pugh in this? Like, is no one outing himself as in, yo, you man. Know, unfaithful to his wife? Like, yeah, we don't want to get into yo. Like, we do and, not. And that's, we and that's need the a other whole thing. separate podcast for is, Nolan's women issues, and that's and, the, bi- the biggest and directors thing. who work with their wives or siblings, and how that begins to show up as motifs in movies, right? Right. Like, why is it? Why is everybody? Why is every female? Actually, that's very interesting like, because Carter also has a little brother that he's always wanting to work with, and that yeah, it, exactly. There's so I, much. No, there's. there's I, I think you're wrong. No, what's, I think a good the, artist picks things that they know can be, if you're doing good art, like you're picking things that work on four or five levels, right? Mm-hmm. So there's definite parallels in here, but there's enough wiggle room to be like, nah, that's not what I'm, nah, that's not what I'm doing. But and, and a lot of the, a lot of the parts of the movie that we're talking about, like this comparisons, that's one hour of the three hours of this, where it's like, yeah, a lot of that first well. hour, there's no, especially that first 15 minutes where it feels like I'm watching Tree of Life, where it's like, hey, here's a guy staring up at the sky and atoms. And it's like, hey, here's electrons flying by. It's like, okay, this is a lot to ask for for a summer film. Uh, but, but it's yeah. like a lot of the comparisons only fit into a small part of this big ass project. Yep, and that's why it's a Citizen Kane type movie, man. There's, there's, I think what I said is just as valid as Chris. What Chris just, you know, his breakdown of it, and they exist in this movie where there's three hours of content to support both things, and you could keep picking different scenes, characters, moments, and analyzing this for so long. Like it, it's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. Um, now, yeah. do you guys? I mean, we all seem to love it, but do you have any like criticisms of it uh, that that have come to mind since watching it? You know, twelve hours ago. I, I do, and it's it's getting back to Nolan is he is the inverse of Spielberg in a lot of ways. In that Spielberg yeah. is about emotion. Yeah, Nolan is pure function. His movies, the perfect movie for him is guys in suits having a little bit of banter, getting a job done. That's what Inception is. That's what honestly, that's kind of what his Batman movies wind up being at certain points. That's what this movie is. So when it dives into it, when it dives into things like relationships, it's like it's like a robot trying to read poetry. It doesn't quite click where I want to ask about that. The Florence Pugh sex scenes are like, this is this is perfectly functional. Is there any romance or like sexual desire in this scene? None. No, and I don't want to see another Nolan sex scene. I want to talk a little bit about Florence Pugh in this movie. Yeah, I don't want to see another like Nolan sex scene. I never need to see that. I, I thought, you know, in, in, in our all our, twi- you know, not even twisted, but our normal actress, hot actress, talented actress fantasies were like, oh, this will be something I, you know, this is why my Mr. Skin stays in business. But this was like, yeah, I was like, please don't do this again. Like, just have have a conversation. It was much less, much more sexy and less uncomfortable than you trying to film a sex scene, please. Yeah. But that's what I said about Interstellar. It was like, Interstellar was a movie where I quote, and people went nuts on me. But I was like, Interstellar is a movie that makes me think Chris Nolan reads like, theoretical science manuals to his kids as bedtime stories you know what i mean like and i was just like uh, i don't know if he has that emotional thing it makes him a brilliant technical director but like yeah i didn't yeah but um florence Pugh's role in this and i don't know the history so I, I'm, I'm approaching this as cinema right now but uh her character what did you guys make of that whole thing? Because I think that's one of the more ambiguous and confusing parts of the movie, Gene Tatum. Yeah, that, I was going to bring up the whole Florence Pugh thing, too, as far as my criticism goes. And I, I, I'm i one of those guys that as soon as I watch a movie, especially something that's based on real life, I mean, I spent like two hours going on Wikipedia and reading about all of the real life people. Uh, Florence Pugh's character uh, being one of them, uh, Gene something, I'm forgetting her name. but um, uh, Gene Tatlock. Yeah, so there was so much more to her. And and what is in the film is accurate, but I felt like it, it just, it was, it was, and maybe it's just, I mean, it's a three-hour movie, right? So it's, a, I mean, you got to make choices. But but I did feel like, I think there was an emotional connection that Nolan wanted us to make with Oppenheimer's relationship with her that I think it goes so fast that it was kind of impossible to really, like, get to that 
that core of, of that relationship and, and what ends up happening to her and how upset Oppenheimer is. I think we spent so little time with them and the little bit of time that we do spend is so uncomfortable that you don't really understand why he is as upset as he is. Um, and when reading about the real life history, I mean, it's, it's clear that they had a lot more time that they spent together than they do in the film. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that didn't, that didn't really hit for me. I, I almost feel like that's something that you could have just probably removed entirely or, or maybe just, maybe touched upon a little like because they kept calling him a womanizer right but he's there's only like really two women in the movie that you see him have any interaction with and so i didn't feel like they presented oppenheimer as the womanizer that they keep claiming that he was yeah now chris in your research did she get murdered was it a suicide or was there ambiguity there ambiguity yeah i just read up on it yeah finally there was ambiguity um and the thing I think that that movie is trying to illustrate and what he's imagining, because I was like, did he murder her? Like, what is this? But I think what he's imagining and what the theory is, is because of her, and it comes back to like Casey Affleck's character in this, is that the theory is that there's a possibility that because of her heavy communist associations and her closeness with Oppenheimer, that even though he might not have done anything, that people surrounding the Manhattan Project, like, Matt, the Matt Damons and Casey Afflecks of it all might have had her killed. I also wish of. that a little bit of I, I wish Nolan had taken just a little bit more time earlier to talk about the difference between the communist U.S. party versus communist Russia, because every time they were talking about communism in the movie until a lot later on, I assumed that they're talking about Russia communism. And I wasn't really up on my history and the fact that there was a, a, a United States Communist Party at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was just talking about this very clear in the film. No, you have to know a fair amount of history. I was talking about this with somebody in a bar last night, but um, yeah, you have to know that, like, in the and I taught like post World War II history and literature for a while. Um, the bottom line is that every generation there's a swing between like political groups and which ones they're like the rise of either left or right leaning political groups. And after World War II, leading into World War II and afterwards, there was definitely like an American Socialist Party. And then that's where the kind of when the Red Scare happened, that's kind of what McCarthyism and that whole kind of political sentiment rose up around against. And it was just people who were like mostly Hollywood actors, hippies, people like that who just didn't believe in the capitalist system and wanted to flirt with ideas of socialism and do all this stuff. But then of course, when the Soviet union became our enemy after world war II, that all got flipped and kind of became this whole other thing. And some people did go full into the kind of Soviet communist leanings, but some people were just like, well, Oh crap. I was just part of this party and exploring ideas. And then they got yeah. followed and on lists and yeah. So a lot of academics and free thinkers and like people like Oppenheimer who were just I consider everything and, you know, you don't know where they're leaning, but, you know, they got on list and all that stuff happened. So, yeah, yeah it was pretty, no, it's pretty nuts. It was pretty wild. And like, yeah, yeah Hoover would just <laughs> put you on a list and send people to go through your trash can and start following you. Now, Kof, let me, Chris, let me ask you guys this. Um, I, have, I, have either of you seen Barbie? Not yet. No. I sure wish I got to watch it last night. So instead no. of the yeah. Barbenheimer conversation, let's ask this. Where does this rank on your movies of the year right now? Since we can't really Oof. have the Barbenheimer conversation. Um, I like to do it two parts. I like to do uh, movies of the year and within Nolan movies. Okay. Which uh, I think I put in the rundown. I believe so. Yeah. That's a good way to get out of here. Um, I think, I mean... Like I said, if anything, Oppenheimer has been this weird reminder that like adult cinema is a thing and not just that like sappy Oscar season movies, but like actual narratively challenging kind of visually stunning and, and compelling adult cinema like Citizen Kane's. There's a lot about this that reminds me of when we were talking about of Requiem for a Dream is another one like great movies great performance of subject matter but i don't know if i'll ever sit down and watch it again that I would, much now i would be terrified by an aronofsky version of this holy crap oh god yeah it would be mostly particles it would be mostly yeah. particles 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And so it's a weird experience because like, it, it's so rare that we get this from movie theaters anymore. So it was just more like, huh? Oh yeah. I did used to like this. And that's why I was joking in the beginning. Like it is good to like get you guys together and have like a conversation about cinema. You know, we're comic book nation, but it's interesting to actually dissect and take down a really challenging kind of character portrait film. So I think it was just kind of a reminder that, yeah. And then maybe this is the point Nolan also wants to remind us like, yeah, we can go to cinema and just see stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's a good reminder. Yeah. I, so far I, I'm pretty steadfast that Spider-Verse has been my favorite movie that I've seen this year, but I think this is probably the most relevant movie of the year. As far as the current times we see ourselves in, I, I think that it's, uh, it's just, a I think it's a very important movie. And I think that it's time that we've had a movie like this that really reminds us of how uh, devastating, you know, nuclear war and these, you know, pow- powerful men, uh, in powerful positions and how dangerous they can be if we elect the wrong people. You know, I think that's an important message to get out. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, it is my second favorite film of the year. I think Spider-Verse was, you know, people will slap the, oh, it's just a comic book story. It's, it's a triumph of animation and it is a collection of so many different styles of animation and storytelling coming together and delivering a, excellent experience that a te- that it's a testament to its greatness that it is an incomplete story yet a com- total complete theater experience mm-hmm. i would only put this a notch below that for it's nolan firing on all cylinders uh, in terms of the nolan hierarchy like I-, I view his 2005 run with batman begins to his 2010 run with inception like i still see that as his prime to where there are in directors who will spend their entire lives never touching that streak. And that's, I mean, that that's the kind of the first chapter of his career. Ironically, um, it's the, I'd say I would not put this above dark Knight. I wouldn't put it above inception, but if you ask me to have that be his number three, absolutely. Yeah. I think I would say for me, it, it is still dark Knight, Then inception, then memento then I would put this after Memento um, because I think Memento is such an important film still uh, and like what it did and, and just what it opened the doors it opened. But I think those are like his top four films. And then after that, it gets really debatable and like kind of where you want to shift things around. But um, yeah, I, I think it's up there with his best. Cause like you said, it is him firing on all cylinders. And I think ironically, this has low key been the film that breaks Nolan out of the mold of he can only like we keep for a while. He was getting that Shyamalan thing where we were coming to him expecting like the same thing every time, Mm -hmm. nonlinear technical movie, big twists, you know, all that stuff. And this one is just kind of him now just making movies and kind of getting into it. I feel like even deeper into his auteur era where, this is like what a Nolan movie will be. And he's entering a new phase where he could be making movies like this for the next phase of his career and pick compelling subjects, both in terms of people and, you know, subject matters, whether they're real historical or just, you know, maybe even like a good fictional portrait, something or just something like a little more PT Anderson stuff, like the master, things like that. Like I would be interested in seeing him kind of go down the lane a little bit more because yeah. I think this broke him out of the period where he was reacting to different criticisms in his films, where I would say from 2011 to 2021, he was making movies where whether it's, oh, you don't like how Bane's voice sounds and you want me to change that? Fine. I'm going to make Tenet where you can't understand this unless you are watching it in IMAX. Um, Oh, you think I can't do emotion? Well, I'm going to make Interstellar, which reads like Data trying to read a poem in Star Trek. I like Interstellar so much better. A lot of people do, but a lot of people, but some people don't. Um, Yeah, it's it's his most divisive film by far. Yeah, and I just like this was the first time where it felt like he's not trying to react to anybody's criticisms. He's not trying to prove people wrong. He's just trying to make a great film, and he nailed that. 
Do you guys think Oscar chances? For, I mean, do you think because this is summer release, which is bold if you're going for Oscars because people's memories are so bad and short and majorly end up voting for whatever movie came out the week before they had to vote. Yeah. Do you guys see Oscars chances for this and whom amongst the cast would you see getting them? I, I mean, I'll Killian say, Hunter, I, oh yeah. 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 Killian, definitely. Downey, um, definitely. I'd I say Gary Ullman needs that. Gary. RDJ. Yeah. 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 Now our RDJ for supporting Killian for Maine. Uh, any. I'd say Emily like, for supporting too. Adapted screenplay since it's based off the book. Yeah. Uh, soundtrack, makeup, score, editing, makeup, yeah. Pe yeah. best picture, production, best design, director. costuming. Yeah. All the, that. Th this stuff. will pop up in a lot of categories. It might not win all of them. It might win a handful, but it's, it's going to get a lot of them. Do you think anybody might possibly nab a supporting nod just based on like one or two scenes like Gary Oldman? For I example. said Oldman. I said I tweeted that out today. I said Oldman needs that Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin nomination for like one scene because like Jesus Christ, what a scene. I, I think down the things he makes you feel for like ugh, just yeah. nailing like Harry Truman and like a portrait within like one scene and just the mind state of a man who did this and you know how he looked at it and all the subtle things that I like they did about, you know, they didn't get into it heavily, but like him being able to drop this bomb on Japan that versus Europe and all of that. And you could just see how he probably viewed those people. Like, you know, as not people, he was just like, yeah, yeah we bombed them. And he was just like, all right. And just the, the vileness of that, like in that scene that, that, uh, Oldman and just the talk about a villain like the menace in that just little speech about you think they care about who created the bomb like that whole mm -hmm. thing I think he definitely deserves a nod for that like that was pretty that's pretty gnarly I don't know I think Downey looms so large over the non-Killian actors that he he gets that nod and they might be like and eh, we're not going to nominate like three people from the same movie I think they might that's the thing, though. I think they might. I think Oppenheimer might be the movie that I'm trying to think of, like, what else is coming out this year. But I think Oppenheimer might be the one where they just, like, it gets a ton of nominations, how many it will win. But, like, yeah, it could flood some acting categories with, like, supportings, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I'm kind of interested now. But I'm never going to see this again, I don't think. <laughs> all right so there we are we are halfway through summer it's been a crazy year of ups and downs for movies but uh i think we would recommend all of you go out if you're listening to this and you're just kind of trying to decide if you're the rare breed of person who's listening to this and going to listen you don't care because i mean it is weird to say this is a spoilers movie when it's history but like if you just wanted to know about the movie and whether you should see it i think the bottom line is i would say this is one we should see. I think we're fully supportive of the whole Barbie Heimer weekend experience. Go see both these movies. But this is one to definitely see in IMAX. There are certain shots in this. Just of the desert, even, which are landscapes, which are just stunning to see. Um, and yeah, I think it is something, if you're a real cinema fan, as we are here sometimes, you should definitely check this out. I mean, this is one of those things you can't miss this year. So... That is our full review, spoilers review, and discussion of Oppenheimer, or as I said in a tweet, a movie I believe they should have called Call Me Oppie, because <laughs> pretty much the amount of times we heard that in this movie, I was just like, oh man, yeah, they should just say that, Call Me Oppie. But um, yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Connor Casey and Chris Killian for hopping in and uh, going to see the movie and hopping on today to talk about it and break it down with us. This is Comic Book Nation, and if you guys are just hopping on for these bonus episodes on the topics of the films and subjects we're kind of covering, be sure to subscribe to Comic Book Nation on our YouTube page, and it's comic book, one word, dash nation, and subscribe to our Twitter feed for as long as that lasts, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms. We will be back. Our regular episodes, live shows are every Friday at noon Eastern time on the comic book Twitch page and our YouTube page. And you guys should definitely jump into those because, man, we have great fans, great discussions, and our fans get into it as we are doing the show and help us get on topics, you know, talk and interact. And it's a good time. So join that community and uh, be a part of it. Otherwise, this has been Comic Book Nation's bonus round episode talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, Connor Casey and Chris Killian, let the people know where they can find you. 
You can find me on Twitter at ConnorKCCB. Still working on that Threads account. And you can catch me on this show every Friday. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Chris Killian. The name is spelled, uh, what is it, right there? Right there. And then uh, on Instagram and Threads at CK Comedy. And you can, you know, check out the, the Daily Distraction YouTube channel if you're into some some daily shorts and all the interviews that we do. It was pretty, it was pretty fascinating. As, as we were getting all these cameos from Oppenheimer, where I was like, I was getting low key excited because I've, I've talked to so many of those people. Uh, I think the only people that I haven't interviewed in that movie was probably Matt Damon and Emily Blunt at one point or another. So that was all right. So yeah. All of those check out so, all of Chris Killian. That was your humble guys, way. So. That was your humble way of saying, check out all Chris Killian's interviews with all the biggest stars of Oppenheimer on the uh, Daily Distraction page and comicbook.com. They want me to wrap this up in 60 minutes, and I got another 20 seconds. So let's just say Oppenheimer, you the bomb. Oppenheimer, you the bomb. Oppenheimer, you the bomb. We all probably going to die. All right, this has been Comic Book Nation. We'll see you guys next time. Peace. Matt Damon. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.